Good morning, church family. As I mentioned earlier, my name is Rob. It's good to see you this morning. And there is um, something that I know about all of you here in this auditorium, and it is this, that you can and do work to understand complex things. All of you do this. I know some of you work with spreadsheets, with incredibly complex formulas and managing budgets in the millions of dollars. Some of you uh, have worked in labs and focused on scientific breakthroughs in immunology or surveillance technology. Some of you high school students work to understand complex things, right? Complex physics, or in your history class, how the U.S. responded to the French Revolution, some of you daily try to figure out the complexities of trying to get a toddler to eat their vegetables or take a nap. All of you can and do work to understand complex and difficult matters, and I'm going to ask you to do that this morning. All right, right from the start, I'm going to acknowledge these verses, starting in verse 15. They're, they are, this is a dense passage, all right? It requires some background understanding. There's some nuance going on here. So I'm going to ask you to ex, just, just ex, you know, use the same rigor that you use for um, international litigation or in your math class, bring your mind in that same way to understand what's going on in these verses. Because um, while it might not be uh, on the surface immediately apparent how they apply to your life, the truths here are profound. And if you understand what's going on in these verses, it changes the way you view yourself and it changes the way you view God and it changes the motivation for why you do everything that you do. So let's lean in. I'm going to ask you, we're going to, uh, to make an agreement with me this morning that we're going to lean in and use our full minds to understand what's going on here. Let's pray and then we'll dive in. Mighty and merciful Father, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word stands forever. And so we pray that by your spirit, you would speak through your word and help us to see Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Remember, we said as we're going through Galatians, we want to grow in gospel fluency, not just kind of having uh, the, the definitions and the terms of Christianity on our flashcards, but knowing how to apply the gospel in every situation, whether it's our freshman year of college or on our volleyball team or in our dating life. We want to know what does the gospel mean? And we've acknowledged that uh, people have come into the church in Galatia and they are teaching that it's actually faith plus obedience that leads to salvation. And Paul is bending all of his effort and strength into this letter to say, no, salvation is by faith and grace alone in Christ alone. And as he's doing that over the past few passages, what he's been laying out is this relationship between God's promises and God's law. What's the relationship between promise and law? Because if you unlock that, if you understand the relationship between the promises and law, it helps you understand actually the whole Bible, all 66 books. It helps you understand what's at the heart of the Christian faith. And so Paul's going to go to, to some of the heart of the matter here, and he's going to talk about um, the Abrahamic covenant, and he's going to talk about the Old Testament law. And right about here is where you say, Rob, 
Tomorrow, I am not going to seminary. Tomorrow, I am going to the Pentagon. Tomorrow, I am going to the sixth grade classroom. Covenants and laws, promises and rules. Can I just contend with you that every one of you directs your life and defines yourself by promises and rules? Some sort of matrix of promises and rules is how you define yourself and direct your life. Everyone that comes to Woodson High School or Fairfax High School, they define themselves and direct their lives by promises and rules. Before I was a Christian, it was a matrix of what promises will I trust in and what rules should I follow? If you or someone you know is deconstructing, they are not removing promises and rules from their life. They are replacing their promises and rules. And so what we're going to see here in these verses is Paul's going to make it clear that the Christian should define and direct their life by God's promises. That the law has a place, but it also has limits. So if you want a roadmap for where we're going, we're going to talk about the priority of the promise, the place of the law, and then the limits of the law. The priority of the promise, the place of the law, and then the limits of the law. Let's look at verses 15 through 17. Uh, Paul starts out, he's like, okay, look, maybe a human example will help. Let me talk about this in a way that you would understand. And he says, everyone knows that man-made covenants, man-made promises or agreements, once they're made, um, they can't be annulled. They can't be changed. There's no canceling them. Right? And as he talks about this, he doesn't just have any covenant in mind. He seems to be talking about last wills and inheritances because he actually uses that inheritance language later. All right? And we all know that. Once the person dies, you can't change the will as much as your family or friends might want to. Once they're, they're, they're dead, that will is final. It's complete. You can't change it. Think about all the stories that you know that involve around inheritance drama, right? Think about the movie Knives Out, maybe, or uh, Dickinson's great story, Great Expectations, or Dwight and his uh, inherited beet farm. Whatever you want to think, you think about inheritances and the reality that there's no changing them once they're done. Why is Paul talking about covenants this way? He goes on in verse 16 and he says, okay, Friends, there were promises made to Abraham and to his offspring. Here's some of the challenge for us this morning. Let's embrace it. When you hear promises made to Abraham, some of you are like, I don't know what those promises to Abraham were. It might as well say uh, promises to Captain Thunderboots for all I care because I don't know what that... Here's some of the backstory that you need to lean in and understand when it's talking about promises to Abraham. It's this reality that in, in, in the beginning, the first book of the Bible, Genesis, in Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, I am going to extend these promises to you. I am going to bless you so that you might be a blessing. In Genesis chapter 12, God says to, to Abraham, I'm going to bless you with my presence. I am going to make you into a great people and I am going to bless you with a place so that all the families of the earth might be blessed in you. That's the promise we're talking about. That's where Paul is starting. And he's going to get even more specific. All right, keep tracking with me. He gets even more specific. He says, um, God promised to do all this for Abraham and his offspring. But then 
he quickly goes into a grammar lesson, right? Did you notice that there? He says, okay, when we're talking about offspring, we're not talking about plural, we're talking about singular. Elementary school kids, you know the difference between plural and singular, many and one. And so he says, when this promise was made to offspring, it was offspring one. It doesn't say offsprings, Paul says, referring to many, but referring to one. In other words, when God makes this promise, He's speaking about the fulfillment of that promise coming to one. And in verse 16, he makes it clear that that one is Jesus. He is the seed. He is the offspring where all these promises come true. The inheritor of them and all who are in him receive these promises. All who are united by faith in Jesus receive God's presence, are brought into God's people, are given a place in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what the promise is about. That's who it's pointing to is Jesus and who inherits it is all that are united to him. Okay, it's important you lean in and understand this promise. And just as important, friends, is that you understand how it was finalized. Like, how was this promise ratified? It wasn't through a handshake, right? This was not a handshake promise. It wasn't, you know, a signing ceremony on the resolute desk. That's not how it was ratified. Um, If you go to Genesis chapter 15, you see this cultural tradition, the way, one of the ways in which they would ratify covenants back then. And it's quite the scene. You know, if we could travel back in time, if we would look at this scene unfolding in Genesis chapter 15, kids, this, you would go back there and you would see Abraham and what he is doing is he's slaughtering animals. All right, he's actually cutting animals in half and you would be like, what in the world is going on? He's cutting animals in half and he's putting one half on this side and one half on this side. A cow, a goat, a ram, some birds. He doesn't cut the birds in half. All right, but there are these dead animals that form a path. What in the world is going on? Here's what's happening. When you make a a promise and a commitment that is significant and substantive, Two parties would walk through this path of blood and death and they would say, if one of us breaks this promise, may what happened to these animals happen to us. That's how serious it was and that's how the promise is being made. And as if that wasn't startling or stunning or confusing enough, it says there in... uh, chapter 15, that as night falls, as night falls, the sun went down and Abraham saw a smoking fire pot and a torch pass between the pieces. What in the world's going on there? What we're meant to understand is that, that it was God who walked through those pieces alone. Abraham did not. Do you see what's happening there? God is making that promise and he's saying the hope of these promises rest on me alone. You got to get this if you're going to get Christianity. 
It goes all the way back to here and even earlier. But God is saying the hope of these promises, the promises of my presence and a place and becoming a people, I'm taking that all on myself. The author of Hebrews, when when they write about it, says, when God made a promise to Abraham since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And this is one of the earliest, clearest pictures that when it comes to salvation, it is not a cooperative agreement between two parties. All right, God's not saying, if you keep up your end of the deal, I'll keep up my end of the deal. No, God's saying, I will do this. This is on me. If you wonder, I will come find you. If you are faithless, I will remain faithful. I am going to do this work. And so Paul is saying, When it comes to who God is and how we relate to him, it's built on these kinds of promises. You need to define your life and direct your life by understanding this is who God is, this is the promises he makes, and he has the power to keep them. So that's why Paul says, hey, yeah, this went down with Abraham, and then some 430 years later, the law comes along, and it doesn't change anything that happened back there. If somehow now we're made right with God because of the law, if we get the inheritance by following the law, then what in the world was that all about? And then Paul anticipates their next question, right? Okay, well then what, why then the law? You see it, verse 19. What's the purpose of the law? Um, you can understand this question though. Right? You can understand why they wait. Okay, well, what's the purpose of the law? If you're, uh, if you're one of those Judaizers and you're hearing Paul say this because the law has become central to how you relate to God as far as justification, you can hear them asking this question. All right, well, what about the law? Are you telling me it's not the center of how I relate to God? Because, well, why would God go through the trouble of giving the commandments? Not just like 10 commandments, but 600 commandments plus like um, moral commandments like the Ten Commandments, uh, ceremonial commandments like in Leviticus, civil commandments on how we run our society. Why would he go through all of that, deliver them through Moses, if this isn't all about the law? Why then the law? And Paul says, okay, I'll, I'll show you one of the purposes of the law. It's not to justify you. In fact, it's to make it clear that you need to be justified by faith. All right? More in verse 19. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring. Who's the offspring? The one, Jesus. Until the offspring, Jesus should come to whom the promise had been made. It was added because of transgressions. Verse 22. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. In other words, um, God gave the law to help us sinners understand what sin really is. Right, John Calvin, the French theologian, pastor, he said, God gave the law to make sin obvious. Let me help you understand it in this way. Let's say you're not in shape. Let's say someone's not in shape, all right? Um, That might not be obvious to yourself or to others around you until a standard is introduced, right? Right? Um, until you have to perform, until you have to live up to a standard, it might not be obvious that you are out of shape. 
But if you introduce a standard, I don't know, for instance, a triathlon, if you introduce a triathlon and you have to meet that standard, perform up to that level, and you're not in shape, it will become obvious to you and those around you. You are not in shape. I know of what I speak. Paul saying that the law was given so that sin might become clear and everyone would understand spiritually you are out of shape. Actually, spiritually you are dead. And, and the law doesn't do this to embarrass us, to laugh at us as the world's slowest triathlete. The law does that so that we might see our need for a savior, so that we might see our need for grace and run to Jesus. That's the purpose of the law there. You see, other religions, other religions have founders. Christianity has a mediator and a substitute. Christianity has a savior that walked that path of death and destruction, that gave his body to be broken and his blood to be shed in our place. Christianity speaks of one who ran a race perfectly in our place and gave us his victory and took our defeat. The law could never do that. Your Savior did that. The law just made it plain. It, the law serves as a mirror to help you see your sin. There's a lot you could say about the uses of the law. It also serves as a lamp to help you see the way to love God and love your neighbor, but we need to keep moving. So we've talked about some of the purpose of the law. Let's look at the limits of the law. All right, okay, remember, hard things. We're leaning in. We've talked about the Abrahamic covenant. We've talked about the purpose of the law. You're doing good. Stick with me. Limits of the law. Paul uses this metaphor of a guardian. He says the law was like a guardian. Look at verses 24 and 25. He compares the law to a, a guardian until Christ came. Verse 25, but now that Christ has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. And we need to get this. Uh, the word for guardian is literally pedagogue, all right? And in ancient Greek culture, families, especially wealthy families, would have a servant in their family that would be a pedagogue. It would be this servant that would be uh, over the children, all right, the point of this servant would be to over the, be over the children, part babysitter, part chaperone, part probation officer, right? They're there to help educate and protect the children. They have a certain limited role. But there's a time when the child grows up and, and the, the, the guardian's service is no longer needed. And Paul's metaphor for the law is saying that the, the, the law served as a guardian for God's people from, from, from Moses all the way until Jesus. And then the kids grew up. And they didn't need the sacrificial system anymore. Because the great and true sacrifice has arrived. Uh, they, they didn't need the priest anymore because the great high priest had come and gone into the Holy of Holies once and for all. They didn't need the civic law in that way anymore because the king of kings, the king of nations had arrived. <laughs> they didn't need the, 
the law to be written on stone tablets anymore because the Holy Spirit has come to write the law on our hearts. The law was a guardian and now the Son has come. It would be like your college professor saying, you know what, I think it would be good if you went back and repeated kindergarten. No, our relationship with the law has changed. We have grown up. The law has limits, and you see it in that word until, right? It says the law was added until the offspring arrived, until the law imprisoned us, until the liberator arrived. The law chaperoned us until the son arrived. Some of what Paul's doing, let's go back to that inheritance. Some of you know what it means to inherit something. Paul's wanting you to, he's wanting the Galatians to know who's included in this inheritance and what's included with it. And you're included not because of the law, but because of the promise. Look at that last verse. For if you are Christ, that is, if you belong to Christ by faith, then you are Abraham's offspring because Christ is his offspring and you've been united to him. And you are heirs. Who are heirs? You know what heirs mean. Those inherit stuff. You are heirs according to the promise. So what does this have to do with Northern Virginia in the middle of October? I wonder what you did with verse 28. Like, look at verse 28 there. When you heard it, like, how did you process it? How did it hit you? I'll read it again for you. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What's going on here? Well, Paul's making it clear who's eligible to be included in the will. Paul's making it clear that when it comes to God and his kingdom, there's really only two categories, his children and his enemies. All right? And if by faith you've placed your trust in Christ, you are his child. And he's saying you can be his child whether you be Greek or Jew, whether you're male or female, slave or free, you can be his child. Now, some of the nuances, when we talk about a passage like this, all right, um, it says the word slave here, right? You can't read the word slave in an ancient Near Eastern document and think slavery in early America. We've preached on this. I'm happy to chat about this. Roman slavery, still broken, still oppressive, but different, all right? Um, he's saying people of different socioeconomic backgrounds brought together as sons and daughters. Uh, you read here also the words no male and female, all right? Paul's not erasing gender distinctions. He's not going against God's good design for male and female. Some would want to use this as a proof text to do something like that. That's not what's going on here. He's saying no, male and female, slave and free. It doesn't matter your gender or your ethnicity. If you're in Christ, there's no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. That's what he's wanting to make clear. And here's the difference it makes. Think about this. Paul's writing this in the letter to Galatia because all of those people are in the church. All of those people. A very countercultural reality. Men and women, slave and free, different ethnicities have gathered together in the church and he's letting them know how to live together with gospel fluency. Do you want to understand why the early church exploded in growth? Even though it was in a hostile context, 
hostile culturally, hostile politically, hostile religiously. The early church exploded in ways that just defy explanation sometimes except for this. One, the watching world looked around them and said, we can't explain why all those people are gathered together. How in the, what is going on there? Why are those different ethnicities? And there, there, there's a place there where our culture totally denigrates women, but in that culture, in that context, they seem to uplift and dignify women and people of different socio, what's bringing them together? And then the way they love God and love others, how do we explain that? You see, the early church didn't run into the world and go, look at our rules. Follow our rules. They said, look at our Savior. And they had met him in such a way that allowed them to live out the law, not to justify themselves, but in a spirit-driven freedom that allowed them to love sacrificially and radically in a way the world could not understand. That's why the early church grew. And so my prayer for this church and for us and for my family and my boys is that we would come to know the promises of God in such a way that they define and direct us, that we would be a people gathered, that when people in uh, Mantua or Mosby Woods or Annandale or Burke, when they look at this people, they're like, I don't understand what brings them all together. That doesn't make sense. And I, and I don't understand why they seem to be devoted. Like the, that guy doesn't compromise his integrity on these government contracts when everyone else around does. I don't understand it. That guy seems to have a capacity, that lady seems to have a capacity to love even her enemies, those that gossip about her. Here in the neighborhood, at the workplace, she seems to be able to love them because she understands the promises she has in Jesus. That's my prayer for us is that um, we would know the promises and we would live out the law again, not because we have it on stone tablets, because as God promises, he changed our heart of stone into a heart of flesh, and then he's writing his law by his spirit there. That's how I want us to live and love and serve, because our lives are defined and directed by God's promises. Let's pray. Father, make us a people that study your word, that we might mine it for treasures of your promises. For some of us, like the clouds yesterday, for some of us, the clouds of our life uh, are hiding your promises from us. We pray that the sun would break through. We pray in difficult marriages or um, in loneliness. We pray that in financial challenges or mental health struggles, we pray that in battles with our doubt, that you would break through the clouds and that we would see Christ. We would see that he was willing to give his body to be broken and his blood to be shed because he loves us and so that you might be the just and the justifier. Help our teenagers to know what this means. Help our empty nesters to know what this means. Help me to know what all of this means, Father. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.